Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into true crime cases through the lens of a trained investigator and former prosecutor turned judge. If you are sensitive to expletives, anatomical descriptions, and accurate descriptions of true crime scenes, this podcast may not be suitable for you. Welcome to Crime Curious. I'm Charnel. I'm Megan. I like it. <laughs> I'm you so happy to be here. A robust I'm Megan. I was at a family event before this, and I am so happy to see you. <laughs> Hold me. me too. I am so excited to see you too. Oh, let's shake our Grigri. We have our Queen of the Peen in there. She doesn't mean me. Nope. She's talking about the crystal skull. I have the raccoon bones. We got a new crystal skull to go with our crystal penises in the kangaroo sack, which is the strangest statement I have ever made. But that's what (laughs) we're like. No, it's not. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. really not. That's a great point. So are you ready? Because I'm bringing you something. This case that I'm bringing you today is then going to lead into a two-parter for next time. If I do my math correctly... This is kind is, of a three-parter. It's a th- it is 100% a three-parter, yep. But the victims from today aren't the same as the victim that we will talk about in the two-parter. Okay. But basically- This, this is the prequel. Is, this is the prequel. And this is hours and hours of research. So buckle up, buttercup, because we're going deep. <laughs> if you could see what Megan just did. That's to, what he said. To, <laughs> And I'm already deceased before I even start. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Oh, shoot. She poured me a, a glass of wine and I did not I get did. to enjoy it because I recorded a little bit earlier, it's, but now I am. So. It's been a super long time since we've it, got to enjoy an adult beverage while we were recording. Yeah. Too. Just in case any of you think that we're alcoholics, we usually drink water yep. or coffee sitting here. Yep. So the, yep. we, are, we are enjoying some, this is our friend time. Well, because we usually record in the morning tonight. Today we get to record in the night so we can have a little nightcap with our, it. with our, uh, episode. So I like that. I'm so so excited right now. Okay. Do you have a title? Well, oh my gosh. Are you going to tell me the story and let me title it afterwards? Yes, you can do that because man, I'll tell you, maybe the next, the part two that's coming up next can be called the impossible shot. Oh, um, this one is just, that's how I got pregnant. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Fair point. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was talking about the fourth one. She's adopted. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, I was talking about the first one where I was on birth control. Oh, well, <laughs> that was the impossible. You shot. win. Yes. <laughs> Love him so much, though. And he listens. Hi. <laughs> you mean the kid. Yes. Yes. 100%. The child. You're going to regret giving me a glass of wine tonight. I think I might. I know our listeners are already <laughs> regretting it. No. Mm-hmm. It's okay. I know they are. So this one, this, this, I've got three victims for you. In this case. And you're not going to like how it ends. Okay. Great. And then you're not going to like how it connects to the next two cases that I'm presenting. But I'm going to start with the first victim, Sandra Vallad or Vallade. I've heard it pronounced two different ways. So please leave me alone about it. Um, You go ahead and choose which way you want to say it. I heard it most predominantly Vallade. Then say that. And I also uh, listened to an audio book on this 
that is called Our Little Secret by Kevin Flynn. So I highly recommend that you pick it up. It's about 10 hours worth of listening. Wonderful Ooh. book. And um, a lot of it is actually about part uh, part two and three that I'm going to cover next. But they, or he, shall I say, um, great book, really, really in-depth. I'll get more into it in the next parts, though, of like some things that I purposely have left out for you to read in his book. But let's start with Sandra. we got to start somewhere. Sandra was born... July 12th, 1941. This is a New Hampshire case. I'm a July baby. So, hi, New Hampshire. In the four- 14th, she's still a cancer then. Yep. It's July, July 12th, 1941. Okay. Mm-hmm. Her parents were Charles and Irene Valade. She and her older brother, also, um, who was also named Charles. So, her older brother is Charles As, Jr., as Jr. happened mm-hmm. during that time frame. Yep. The family lived in a small New Hampshire town called Hookset. On February 1st, 1960... So we're in the 60s for all of this uh, episode, as a matter of fact. You said she was born in 40 what? 41. Mm -hmm. So she is 18. Yeah, she's a young lady. Yep, February 1st, 1960. She's 18 years old. And she was working as a secretary for a coal winder. Coil winder. Sorry. One, I don't know what a coal winder is, but I also know what a coil winder is. Um, I think it's what it exactly sounds like of wi- literally taking winding coil. coil. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! Because okay. it's in a factory. Yep, oh. in Manchester, New Hampshire. Gotcha. Yep. So, as pretty typical of her, she left work for the day and she went to the local library. We know that. All right. I like. I don't her know already. if she was returning a book or if she was. But she was getting a, a reader. Book. She was. She was at the library, and then you're really gonna love this. She joined her swimming class at the YMCA. I do. How freaking wholesome is that? I do. She's Belle from Beauty and the Beast and Esther Williams all in one. She is. Well, and then she went to go see a movie after that. She was very busy after work. Once the movie was over, she realizes there's a terrible snowstorm happening. It is New Hampshire. Yes. And it's February. So she got on a bus to head to the house, um, you know, to her house, which she still lived with her parents, of course. At 9.14 p.m., we know that she got off the bus and she began a mile walk to her home in the snowstorm. Okay. However, she never makes it home. Mm. The next day, her bag, coat, wallet, and one of her boots is found in a canal. Her wallet? Yep. Her bag, coat, wallet, and one of her boots are found. Yeah, this doesn't scream robbery. No, no, he, she wasn't robbed. Nine days later... Her body was found in a snowbank because they did have to wait for the snow to melt a bit after the big snowstorm. And this is where I'll give you a trigger alert. Uh, She had been sexually mutilated and assaulted. She was shot four times with a twenty-two caliber gun in the head and stabbed four times in her chest. Mm. And her throat was slashed. Jesus, which one was the injury that killed her? Thank you. That was extreme overkill. I mean, yes. Can we hope that the sexual mutilation happened after? Let's say it did, because we have no idea. We, we don't We know. honestly don't we know. We honestly do not know. And is it bad of me that I'm literally over here picking a death method? Because oh, right. I'm like, I hope they shot her. They just shot her. I shot yes. her first, and everything else yep. happened secondary. Yep. Authorities had few, few leads in the case because of the fact that it happened in the middle of the snowstorm. The snowstorm uh, hid took away a lot of the evidence well, that they would melts, typically look for. It melts enough to, hide, to so that you can see the body. You're mm-hmm. not going to have your footprints and nope. stuff anymore either. Or tire tracks or anything like that. Yeah. And the case did grow cold because of the fact that, like we said, the snowstorm, because of the snowstorm as well, Megan, there's not anybody out to be eyewitnesses. 
Okay. The only reason we know as much as we do know is because people saw her at the library, at the swim class, at the movie, on the bus. And to get off the bus. And to get off the bus, which was only a mile away from her home, as she typically would every day. So it's thought that she likely accepted a warm ride from someone to get out of the snowstorm for that last, you know, mile drive ride to her home. But we don't really know. And it was cold for four years before all of a sudden the murder of another young woman happens under identical circumstances. So everything that I just told you about the manner of death for Sandra happens to a 14-year-old girl named Pamela Mason. Okay. Now, little information on Pamela. She was born May 7th, 1949, also lived in Hookset, New Hampshire. As I said, she was 14 years old at the time of her murder. She was said to be blossoming and responsible young lady. She was a freshman in high school and an honor student. She was so responsible, as a matter of fact, that she wanted to take up a babysitting job. So she was hanging ads around town advertising her babysitting services. It's so adorable. Yep. And they had her, you know, the babysitting service had her name and phone number on them. And this is all during the winter of 1964. Because remember, it's four years after Sandra Valade's murder. Four years. Four years. Yep, it went cold. Sandra's That's right. thing went cold for four years. So we're in 1964. One of the places that she hung an ad was the local laundromat. How we would, it was called like a laundromat or something like that. But it, it's a laundromat, Okay. Insert here a key player, someone who comes up in parts two and three as well. One of the employees who worked at the laundromat was a woman named Rena Paquette. Now, Rena was a wife, mother, and super hard worker. Rena saw Pamela put that babysitting flyer up at the laundromat and spoke to her. On January 13th, 1964, a man called Pamela Mason's home asking if Pamela could babysit his child. Ugh. Now, one account said that Pamela was actually kind of caring for her brother at the time, okay, her younger brother was fixing him dinner, and that she said, yes, after I fix my brother dinner, I can be there. Another account said that her mother agreed to let the man pick her up, but only if his wife came with him. Okay. But I don't think that that account is true. I think the other one is where she made her brother dinner and she set off for the man's she left house yep, to go to go babysit yeah. because this man would not have come. Well, we get to him in a minute, but he wouldn't have come with his wife. And so Pamela's mom wouldn't have let her go, you know, if that was the stipulation because there was no woman involved. That night, whether she set out on foot for the man's house or the man came and picked her up, we don't know. But either way, she set out, she leaves the house with the intentions to go babysit with a response to her babysitting ad. And she never returns home. Hmm. Her father then discovered that the phone number and address given by the man, because Pamela wrote it down, where she was going to be, the address and phone number, which is another reason why I don't think that her mom was involved in saying, yeah, he can pick you up as long as his wife is there, because Yes, she could have left that information, but, you know, I think mom, I think she left that information because her parents weren't home. Right. Like, this is where I'm going to be. When the dad called that phone number and went to that address, it belonged to an elderly couple that did not have any need for a babysitter. Yeah. And we'll find out later where he got that address. My theory on where he got that address from when he was responding to that ad. Eight days later, 
a truck driver spotted Pamela's purse and school books. Even some exam papers that she had um, with her was in a snowbank along Interstate Route 93. She was going to be studying for an exam while she was babysitting. Right. This is this what is responsible how, teenage mm-hmm. babysitters do. Yep. So this is found in a snowbank around Interstate 93 in Manchester. I will note as well that this is also during a snowstorm. Okay. I got the blizzard killer here. For sure. It is. This this is the what is snow, it? Bank, the snow, the snow bank bandit yeah what is the snow bank bandit? the abominable the abominable yes, killer yes exactly and we'll find out he wears a white coat so this is even tracking for that too oh, great he's so, a yeti what he, he is he's a, a bad one when she when they found her of course it was nine days or eight days later excuse me again they had to wait it i think that snowstorm had dropped like a foot of snow or some ridiculous amount of snow. So she wasn't, none of her things were found and she wasn't found yet because the snow had to melt. She had been bound, tortured, sexually assaulted and mutilated, stabbed four times, shot in the head four times with a 22 caliber gun and her throat was also slashed. Does that sound familiar? Sure does. So they also believe that she was likely deposited like where they found her um, because there was very little snow underneath her, if if any. And that night on January 13th is when they got over a foot of snow. So, and it was like later in the night after they'd already discovered that she had not come home. So that's why they're like, okay, this, you know, she had been bound and she had been tortured and whatnot, but she was deposited there likely before the snowstorm had hit and dropped the worst of the snow. And of course it ruined the snowstorm, ruined Footprint, tire tracks, all of that. Now, at this point in time, the small town of Hookset is a freaking wreck. Yeah, you have two dead teenagers. Yes. First is an unsolved 18-year-old, now a 14-year-old. They want answers. They are literally, it it is all around town. The sheriff of the time, the attorney general of, of the time are not only under pressure, but they are under serious scrutiny. And this is 1964. We don't want to look bad to the press at all, right? And they're being run through the ringer. Like the media coverage of this is demanding justice. You have safe, like New England towns that are supposed to be beautiful and friendly and crime doesn't happen here. That Uh happens in the inner city. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Now, remember the laundromat where Pamela hung her flyer? Yes. Well, that had her phone number on it. That had her phone number on it. Yep. The owner of the laundromat, whose name I do not know, I do not have this this name, called her employee that I mentioned earlier, Rena Paquette. Rena Paquette? Yes. Remember, Rena, I told you she comes up in the next couple of episodes. Yes. Okay. And Rena is the one that saw Pamela hang that flyer and talk to her. So the owner of the laundromat calls Rena Paquette and she tells her, I know who killed Pamela and Sandra. And how exactly do you know this, ma'am? Well, because it's her son, Edward Coolidge. Okay. Rena didn't know what to do. She told her husband, Arthur, at dinner. Arthur, I think our boy's been up to some bad shit. No. Okay. Arthur, I think my employer's boy has been up to bad shit. Okay. Gotcha. Rena's like, so my boss called me today and said she thinks that her son, Edward Coolidge, 
murdered Pamela and Sandra. Why would you tell that to somebody? Well, Arthur, exactly. Arthur's like, why would this woman call you? You guys aren't even really friends. She's your employer. And why would she tell you this information? It's exactly what Arthur said. And I want to point out, she told her husband, Arthur, at dinner after her, her two sons, Victor and Danny, had left the table. And I mentioned them because Victor and Danny is who we're going to talk about in part two and three. So Arthur wanted to know, like, okay, great. Why do you know this information? Rena's like, well, I think she told me because she can't bring herself to turn her own son in and she wants somebody else to do it. And why she chose me specifically is because the woman had information that one of the girls had been murdered in the Paquette family's pigsty, which was kept at the back of the property. Oh. So a little bit about the Paquettes. They owned a large dairy farm on Brown Avenue with land and barns on it. When Arthur Paquette got into the hog business, he soon soon learned that the smell was too much to bear being close to the house like the dairy farm. I can attest to this. I just want you guys to know. I grew up on a pig farm. So did my spouse. And the smell of a pig farm does not bother me. But I can tell you that the dairy farm smells horrific to me. And you know, I can't handle the smell of a dairy farm. What's funny is I have a dairy farm right down the road from me and I very much enjoy it, that. Yes, does but not bother when you. I smell the pigs from yes. Baker's, I'm like, Ugh. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and the same goes for pe- dairy farmers. Okay. They do not enjoy the smell of a pig farm. It's very interesting. Now, my, we never Everybody had, likes their shit to smell a certain, certain way. way. You get used Horses. to it. Horses. I hear most people say that horse horse farms are lovely smelling. Actually, I do like the smell of horse farms. I yeah. just visited my my niece works on yes. one in North Carolina. Those ranch and, yes. and the smell of horses. Yep. and yeah. that, that doesn't bother me either. There just seems to be a divide between pigs and and cattle cows but we didn't have we did have cattle which is very much different than dairy i can tell you that oh. cattle shit ta- it tastes <laughs> <laughs> that was not a freudian slip i can't i'm leaving it I in can't. never tasted it to my knowledge <laughs> the other sense it smells different uh Regular cattle manure smells much different than dairy manure that's produced by dairy Just cows. in your defense, smell and taste are very closely <laughs> related. Are. And they so I know are. that you haven't actually tasted <laughs> shit no. No. intentionally. No. Oh, I have accidentally tasted pig shit before by being a pig farmer <laughs> of 100%. Course. But, of course. I understand. But not dairy. No. <laughs> no. Oh. I'm going to take a sip before I continue, everybody. I'm crying a little bit. Oh, shit. Just a Sorry. Little. But I will tell you, so this to me resonated. I'm like, this makes sense. Yeah. That yes, they ha- they are a dairy farm. So before anybody's like, well, that's suspicious that they put this pig sty behind back in their back of their property. No, no not they at all. Want it up yep. front. They're desensitized to the dairy smell, not used to the pig smell. So it's in the back. And someone very well could have been murdered there without them knowing. If you've ever been in a pig sty, it, it wouldn't be hard to cover it up. And pigs really do eat anything. I know. I was so, just gonna say that. Uh Arthur however, did not believe it because he's like, nope, there was nothing out of the ordinary in my pigsty. But then again, he had no reason to look for a crime scene, you know, while he's doing his daily chores. So it, I, I think in my opinion, anyway, that it's, it's entirely possible. Well, Arthur instructed Rena to stay out of it. Like you, you need to just stay out of this. But Rena kept getting phone calls from the mother, Edward Coolidge's mother. 
Ooh. to do something. And her name is never mentioned. So I don't really? know if that's purposefully. No, but I, and I also will say this in the book, Our Little Secret, many names are changed to pseudonyms. Okay. I'm just, I'm only ever giving names that I know are real names and the actual people that want to be named. Okay. So, and it's possible that some are pseudonyms because that's what they were listed as. And in the, in the, uh, yeah, well, I know the author Audio. did do some um, interviews as well okay. and still we're progressing. Hey, with if pseudonyms. we can't dig it up, there's a reason for it. Yeah, exactly. So we, and I'll be respectful don't... to people and wanting their privacy. Correct. So Rena called the Manchester Police Department and spoke to an officer who had been taking hundreds of calls at this point on the Pamela Mason case, right? Because she has just recently been found and the whole town's in an uproar. So on Saturday, on a Saturday, Two police officers arrive at the house to take her official statement, and they are following up on her tip. Arthur was not pleased that his, his wife had gotten involved, but to Rena, after she gave her statement, the burden is lifted, right? She did her part. She told them that she believed Edward Coolidge was the killer, who was also a bakery delivery driver. Oh. So he wore a white coat. They wore a white coat back then. Yes. And also where I suspect that he got the um, address of an elderly couple, the phone number and address of that elderly couple as well. They were on his delivery route. So he had a wife and an infant daughter. He had no other like history of violent tendencies, anything. But he also didn't have an alibi for where he was at the time of either of the murders. And neither did his wife. It's in terms of like, no, he wasn't with me. Okay. So I don't know. Edward Coolidge. Like I was home with our baby. Yes. He was not with exactly. me. He was at work. Yep. Yep. So when Sandra was, was murdered, they didn't have their young daughter yet. Okay. Just when Pamela was. Oh yeah. Four years prior. Mm-hmm. The police took her statements and thanked her. Now that weekend, shortly after this police visit, the family had received threatening, two threatening phone calls to Rena. And... Rena was working at the um, laundromat and was visited by Edward Coolidge. And they exchanged what was described as a harsh com- harsh conversation that Rena regretted. Okay, she didn't like exchanging harsh words. Okay. But he knows that she has tipped the police off. Because he is pulled in Sunday to the police station. She was interviewed Tuesday, or right. Saturday. He's pulled in Sunday for questioning, and a lie detector test. But now I'm going to take you until to Monday, February 3rd, 1964. So two days after Rena talked to the police. She was up early as a farm wife is, making the family breakfast as usual. Arthur was getting ready to do chores. Victor, her teenage son, was already getting ready for school. And Danny Paquette, who was 15, got to sleep in on this Monday because he had a dentist appointment that his mom was taking him to. Rena worked typically when her kids were in school or on the weekends so that she could be home in the afternoons and evenings with the kids. So Rena and Arthur had six children total, but Victor and Danny were the youngest two, so they were the only ones still living at home. Gotcha. All right. So they're they're damn near empty nesters. Yeah, they're like 15 and 17. Good ages. Yep. So Rena told Arthur that she was going to speak to Edwards Coolidge's mother again after the dentist appointment. And Arthur was pretty serious with this warning and said that she's not going to do that. She just needs to stay out of it, especially since the phone calls had happened and the visit with Edward had happened. He was not happy about those things and he just wants the police to handle it and her to stay out of it. 
So Danny Paquette, her 15-year-old son, Rena's 15-year-old son, wakes up at 10 a.m., confused as to why his mother let him sleep so late because he had completely missed his dentist appointment at this point. Damn you, mom. Yeah, yeah. He's like, something, this is weird because mom didn't wake me up. He looked all over the house for her. Then he went out to the barns to see if she had checked on, you know, some of the herd, something like that, and then checked the house again. She's not there. Now, this is not like Rena. <clears throat> right. Okay? Rena is of a course. dutiful mother. He called his aunt, who lived just down the road, and was kind of panicked at this point in time and explained that he could not find his mother, which is odd. And so his aunt sent her husband. Now, her husband, which is Danny's uncle, his name is Charles Robinson. And so he is actually bro- uh, Arthur's brother-in-law. Right. So the, the aunt is is Arthur's sister. But... Charles is a police officer in Manchester. Oh, okay. But he uh, was off duty that day. Sure. So he's like, absolutely. I will come down and let's see what's going on. You and know? it makes sense. The he's, aunt wouldn't come because no. she has a police officer husband who can yep, go and yep. do this. Exactly. Yeah. And police officer husband Charles is just thinking, okay, it's 10 degrees outside. So if she's taking a walk, I'm going to find her pretty quickly because she's going to be home quick. She's not staying out long. Right. You know, he's really not panicked at this point in time. The two search the farm again because they're thinking now, okay, maybe she slipped on ice and hit her head and is laying unconscious somewhere. That would be me. Very valid, yeah, uh, concern. As they were searching, Danny noticed that there's smoke rising from the back end of the farm in the direction of the pigsty. So the pair run about the half mile through a field. In 10 degree weather. In 10 degree weather. It was described as a bright sunny day, but the wind was whipping. And it's it's ten Bright degrees and sunny outside. With ten degrees in mm. wind in nope, the, the Midwest or Eastern that's Seaboard. Freezing, so cold, you guys. Because yes, that means the cloud cover isn't keeping any heat. No, and it is even colder. The wind it makes the wind chill. By mm-hmm. the way, on a ten degree day, probably what negative Below, twenty, yeah. negative ten at least. Yes, yes, something something like that. I'm not a meteorologist, but you know what? They guess all the time, so I, I'm going to do it too. I was I'm going to say they promise you all kinds of things yes. that they don't they don't uh, follow through with. Right. So we're going with 20 below. It feels like 20 below. (laughs) And they ran a mile through the snow uphill. (laughs) They did. Right. Yes. But they did run across this field towards the pigsty. Yeah, I can imagine. And they see immediately that there's a big log propped up against the door from the outside to prevent the door from opening. So Charles. And where's the smoke coming from? Like through the roof. Okay. Charles, the uncle, had kicked it out of the way, had moved it out of the way, and opened the door to a horrific sight. And this is where I'm going to give you a trigger alert again. And this turn of events happened so fast that Charles wasn't able to prevent Danny from entering the barn right behind him. Yeah. And Danny does see his mother's charred remains laying on her back. So if you can picture this, this is important. It's it's gruesome, but these details are important. Okay. And I will get to it in a minute. But she is lying on her back face up. She is very obviously deceased. She's still wearing her house coat and slippers that she made the family breakfast in. I will note she was 47 years old. To all that knew him said, Danny was never the same after seeing this. No. Okay. When Victor arrived on the scene, he was so traumatized that he sat on that very log that prevented his mother from leaving the barn. He recalls an officer offered him a cigarette by way of, you know, condolence and told him that it would all work out for him. 
Now, what the fuck is that I supposed to mean? I don't know. This is this is how men dealt with bad things with children in, in the 1960s. You just suck it up. Have a smoke. Here, let me get you a shot of whiskey. Right. Don't feel anything. Right. So I, I, I honestly think the guy probably didn't have any ill intentions no. toward any of it. It was just like, everything's going to be fine, man. Have a smoke. He had the best intentions, but this is something that sticks with Victor the rest of his life. Yeah, he's traumatized. He remembers this. Of course. So to Arthur, and probably to most of us listening, the, uh, the likely killer was pretty obvious. I mean, we're all thinking, right, that it had to have been Edward Coolidge. Pamela's body was sent to Harvard University for an autopsy because they didn't have a state medical examiner at that time. I mentioned earlier the attorney general, uh, his name was William Maynard. I didn't mention his name earlier, but I, I mentioned about how him and the police chief were under a lot of scrutiny to catch the killer of Pamela Mason and Sandra. Yeah. And now we have this. Another body of a woman. And are they just going to be quick to jump to the easiest uh, route? What do you think the easiest route would be here? To arrest Mr. Coolidge. You'd think. They don't do that. Why? Well, Arthur reads in the papers a couple of days later that Attorney General Maynard Maynard gave the press statement that they aren't able to connect the Rena Paquette and Pamela Mason deaths. Oh. Yeah. Arthur was outraged because he learns from the police that they ruled her death as a suicide. I told you how she was found. Flat, okay. Flat so, on her back. Flat on her back. Not withered in any sort of way. And we're going to get to what self-immolation, which is actually the term for, for when, when you, you light die. yourself on mm-hmm. fire. Yes. Sorry first to be all, blunt, but that's what they're saying she did. Yes. And first of all, it happens in less than 1% of all suicides. And when it does take place, the body tells the story because it is contorted from withering and pain and neurological processes and reflexes that happen while you burn alive. Correct. Rena was lying flat on her back, not contorted at all, almost in a peaceful-like state. Like she, she was, was dead before they burned before her. she was of burned. Of course. There was also no accelerant found anywhere. Not on her body, not around her body. So there's not litter, in the litter barn. clothes? Right. She no just, accelerant, they just lit her clothes. Yes. Because she is still wearing her pajamas and sli- her robe and her slippers, they said, right? She 100% is. Another way why you think she's alive when she's lit or she's dead when she's lit on fire, because if she was alive, imagine how difficult it would be to burn to death without accelerant. And okay. And to burn to death without moving, to oh. just lay down and peacefully yep. burn. And never and she you was, have nerves and muscles that are she going. She was sprawled out. Okay. Like splayed? Yes. Like arms just and legs. Arms and legs out. I had a question, but I lost it. They did find semen. Okay, thank you. But they no, I'm not glad we found semen. But I was going to ask that. And also, was there any? Just because somebody is burned um, extensively doesn't mean that you might not be able to find other. Like, was there blunt force trauma? Was there um, uh, strangulation? Were there any um, marks, ligature marks? At the time, or she was way too charred. In 1964, they ruled it a suicide. Turns out that the autopsy wasn't exactly. Mm, thorough, well documented, and he, basically, we were told the the um, the Harvard doctor was told this by the attorney suicide. general, "This is what we're looking at. This is what it needs to be." 
And yes, there was semen found, but there was no way to test it. And they, you know. Could have been her husband's. Exactly. They didn't ask Arthur the question of whether or not they had been intimate. Recently. Recently. Had, did she no. have a reason to want to kill herself? Well, you, or was I'm it just so, so fucking cold and she was taking care of the pigs and said, I just can't deal with this anymore and lit herself on fire. Oh, honey. Sorry if that's blunt, but that's about how reasonable it sounds. That's more reasonable than what they say. I love that that's how you, what the reason you gave, because that's a better reason. <laughs> well, I was joking. So what, what is the reason? Well, I know. Are you going to make me mad? Yeah. Okay. On November 22nd, 1963, if you guys know that date, it's the date that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Oh my God, like she was a groupie? She took her own life because that was big news happening at the time and she couldn't handle it. That coupled with the fact Pam, or, that she was distraught over Pamela Mason's death, the death of a 14-year-old, the death of her precious president made her kill herself. A mother of six that was happy and a wonderful wife and mother. And this is just stating facts, not an opinion. No. But not only suicide, but suicide by lighting herself on fire with no accelerant in a barn. Over people she didn't know. Over what? At, in a barn. In her family's place. Of, why would she do it in the barn if you were going to do this? Oh, I mean, you got to do it somewhere. Okay. Yep. Her death certificate read as... Death was by suicide, excuse me. To add insult to injury, when the family returned home from Rena's funeral, you know, when they went to say goodbye to her, they came home to uh, the site of the pigsty on fire once again because someone had burned it to the ground when they were gone at her funeral. And there's no evidence. Yeah, exactly. To be found that's, later. That's my thought, which is super weird that she returned from the other side to burn down the barn so that there was no evidence of her suicide all right so this explanation was has got to go down as the lamest in history for the (laughs) shitty ag and chief's work at this point in time um she was a loving mother devoted wife and um the fact that she would you know kill herself over john f kennedy although sad right absolutely is very unlikely the police do however follow up on the tips about edward coolidge and in February 1964, they begin questioning residents who owned 22 rifles, all right? And one of those questioned was 27-year-old delivery man named Edward Coolidge. Now, he had also already been questioned previously in Sandra's case. I do believe it's because he owned a 22 then as well. Okay. I'm sure multiple people did. They did. Okay. Yes, exactly. Yep. He admitted that he had gotten in, gotten his 1951 Pontiac sedan stuck in the snow along Route 93 the night that Pamela had vanished. Weird. A couple had helped him free his car. However, they said the time was different from what Coolidge said. And at a spot much closer to where Pamela was actually found than what Coolidge said. Okay. Investigators pulled Coolidge in for questioning on February 2nd, like I had told you. This was the day before Rena was murdered. Uh So, and it would have been the day after Rena contacted the police. They questioned him, gave him a lie detector test, which came back as inconclusive. Mm -hmm. But they let him go very early on the morning of February 3rd, the day that Rena was murdered. Mm Mm-hmm. Investigators searched Coolidge's vehicle and obtained several weapons from it, including his 22 caliber Mossberg rifle. Gunpowder particles were found in his vehicle. 
His Mossberg rifle was later determined through ballistics testing to be the weapon that was used to kill Pamela. Her bloody clothing, Pamela's bloody clothing, were also found in the car as well as microscopic analysis indicating that clothes from his residence had been in contact with Pamela's body. Oh, so that's there's pretty fibers. detailed for then. Yeah, there's <clears throat> fibers on Pamela's body that match clothes they found in Coolidge's house. For sure. Her hair was also found on the clothing. I'm impressed. In his house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good solid case right there. Mm-hmm. As a result, on February 19th, just 14 days after Rena's death, Edward Coolidge is arrested and charged with Pamela's murder. But they're still saying that Rena's murder is not connected to Rena's death, excuse me, is not connected yeah. to Pamela's murder because we don't have a serial killer on the loose. People in this town were literally busting into church services, announcing to everyone that the murderer of Pamela Mason had been arrested. This is how invested this town is. And I firmly believe a huge reason why they refused to look farther into Rena's, Rena Paquette, Rena Paquette's death because they did not want mass, more mass hysteria that there's a serial killer on the loose. So, He goes to trial. Edward Coolidge goes to trial. I'm going to give just you a trigger alert. Okay. Because you as a judge. The rest of you, screw you. This trigger alert is for me. Well. And it's because she knows that I I, I can't have some opinions. You're going to be upset about, you're going to agree with the way things go down. Okay. Legally, you're going to agree. All right. But it's going to tick you off because there was another way. Okay. Okay, that's what, professionally, it's a professional trigger alert. Thank you. At Edward Coolidge's trial in June 1965, witnesses testified that he had given three different versions of where he had been on the night of Pamela Mason's murder. Okay. He claimed first that four men would be able to substantiate his alibi for that night. However, they all testified that they had not seen him, so nice try. (laughs) Oops. Maybe know who your real friends are. Yep. Ballistics testing showed that his rifle was used to kill Pamela and Sandra. What? However, Edward Coolidge testified that he had won the weapon in a contest, contest in 1961 after Sandra's murder. He wasn't being tried for Sandra. This is just Pamela's trial. Right. The prosecutor rebutted by showing that the weapons did not have serial numbers, meaning that he could have had two rifles, one from the contest and one that he used to commit the murders. Now, her bloody clothing were found in the car, which was basically the nail in the coffin for the jury. And remember that her bloody clothing was was found in the car. In the end, he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Believing that Edward Coolidge would live out the remainder of his life behind bars, William Maynard, who was such a great AG at the time, did not bring forth the remaining indictment for Sandra Valade's murder. Why? Lazy. According to the book, Our Little Secret, he told people, quote, we already got him for one, no need to get him for two, end quote. In other words, I'm a lazy <clears throat> fuck. And people s- had different versions of what was justice um, than yeah, we do now. Certainly. Obviously, every crime victim wants to their family wants to have closure yes and i think that we think about those things now more yes from every aspect Mm -hmm. uh and and so to them and how many times have we seen that happen where usually it's a case where one case just isn't as good to prosecute so they have a we get a conviction or there is a conviction on one charge and then they're like these other ones may not be proved but this yeah well it's going to come back to bite everybody in the ass okay 
All right. So, and obviously, since they've already glossed over Rena, or glossed over his, I, why can't I say glossed over Rena's murder as a suicide? It's a lot of urge. It, it really urge was. And, ease and yeah. And apparently, my mouth doesn't function that way tonight. <laughs> so there's no charges, not even an investigation, really brought forth for that crime either. It took six years, but Edward Coolidge appealed his conviction. Really. On January 12th, 19- Because of the life sentence or because he didn't do it? We'll get to it. Okay. It's going to piss you off because you're going to agree with this. Okay. On January 12th, 1971, the Supreme Court heard the case. The U.S. Supreme Court determined that a search and seizure of his vehicle had been done on a search warrant signed by the freaking Attorney General William Maynard, who later became the prosecutor for the trial. The court said that a neutral party should have signed the warrant. They ordered a new trial for him. Maynard knew oh, that he sh- would be the prosecutor and signed the the warrant anyway. However, he signed the warrant like in in Michigan search and seizure. In of Michigan, the car. judges a judge or magistrate has to sign the warrant, and the prosecutor, which is kind of like the AG, the prosecutor. Uh, can sign, but isn't required to sign. We usually make, we usually have them sign, by the way. When the police go get a search warrant, they have the prosecutor sign off it. It's the judge that actually, or magistrate that actually signed the search warrant. So was he kind of acting as a, a judicial official at this point, signs it, and then goes to prosecute the case? Because that I can understand is definitely a no-no. Yeah, he wasn't a magistrate or anything like that. He was the attorney okay. general. So maybe here, here's my thought then. This. Now, I bet he signed it as the prosecutor. A judge probably did sign it, but he signed off on it. And was not detached and neutral per their argument, knowing that he would be the one prosecuting the case. He well, would, a neutral party did not sign. No, you're right. There was no judge, warrant. so they must that must not have been required there. I have to research now. I don't you, know. You have boggled my I, legal mind. I do know that the reason behind him getting a new trial is that the it US, wasn't signed by a detached and neutral party, which yes. is the fundamental search warrant requirement right. when it comes to its signature. Yep. So there was no judge, no one to sign off on it. He literally signed the search warrant knowing that he would prosecute the case. Yes, and the oh. case, the, the nail in the coffin was her bloody clothes found during that search right. and seizure so of his car. this makes the search illegal, yes. which means that everything found in there is considered to be the quote-unquote fruit of the poison tree, mm-hmm. and you can't use any of it. It's not admissible. And once you aren't allowed to use that evidence, what do you have left that can prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt? Right. Well, now it's on the prosecutor prosecution to try. Yeah, It's been sent back for a new trial, so right? So now it's a new trial. Now it's a new trial. They make him a deal. He pleads guilty to second degree murder, which comes with a sentence to serve between 25 and 40 years with credit for years already served. Because this is 1971. He went to prison in 1964. Okay. So at that time, inmates could earn good behavior. Oh, yeah, they still do. Yep, off their minimum sentence, their minimum sentence, people, at a rate of 12 and a half days per month for five months per year. So a model inmate can see his or her sentence reduced by as as much as two-thirds, essentially. Now, I will give you some historical perspective because I knew you were going to ask for it. I know know my co-host so well. A former attorney general, it is important to remember that New Hampshire during those years had a penile system that was among the most lenient in the country with a low crime rate in prison population. Um, and it hadn't really changed in like a hundred years. So in that time, there's no death penalty and first degree murder was really 18 years to life. Okay. okay. Minimum sentence, 18 years, which after factoring off for good behavior, 
a good person that behaves in prison who got the 18 to life could potentially be out after 10 years in like seven months. Yeah, I've heard of this. So in 1978, after 14 years in prison, Coolidge applied for parole, but he was denied. And still, prison and parole officials praised him for being an an exemplary prisoner and for completing college-level courses. Coolidge was granted parole in 1991 over the objections of 21,000 petitioners and many politicians. The parole board chairman, Richard Leonard, said, quote, he is the best risk I've seen out of 600 cases, end quote. They do risk uh, risk assessments when people are going to be recommended for parole. They do. Across the country, the political winds had shifted to the right and getting tough on crime was growing a growing priority. In New Hampshire, this movement had a villain and this villain was Edward Coolidge and the penile system that seemed to coddle Please him. Please say penile again penile penal i know it's penal system i've been waiting for you to correct me you let me do it like five i smiled times. and you kept looking at me and i was like does she want me to say yes, something i was doing it on purpose penal because you know come on i've got a sack of penises i'm looking right at here. them i know that's why i have to see it say you're it's a a- penile system. you're an ass man okay oh, thank i appreciate you. that you let me do it like five times though before you, you like- kept looking at me and i was like what? <laughs> I love that you're like, by, by the way, it doesn't, way. it doesn't matter how you say it, whether it's penal or penile, because it's people still make fun of it, but it means punishment. It does. Punitive. It does. It does. It doesn't mean peen. It does not. <laughs> so I, and I'm here to tell you like this man is out and, and was released. 91. 1991. And it caused an uproar for New Hampshire, frankly, because they're like, wait a second. First of all, he was never tried as he should have been for the murder of Sandra. Well, okay. got sent back and he was re- retried, but took a plea. Well, it, no, that was all for Pamela's case. Oh, he you was mean, never yeah, you're tried, tried for sorry, Sandra. I apologize. He was never tried for Sandra. And That's right. there's many implications that he could possibly have been the murderer of Rena. If he's not, it's a damn weird stroke of... She happens to luck be ever. Because we will get to it in the next, um, the two-parter that I am that I will do next. But we're going to get to some more information about Rena's death. Okay. Um, her case is still unsolved today as the day of this recording. And Edward Coolidge has not been investigated, questioned, or anything about Rena Paquette's murder. Not even questioned. And he's not been tried for Sandra Valade's murder as well. However, and this is how I'm going to transition us into the next episodes. Okay. On the first day of hunting season, November 9th, 1985 in Hookset, New Hampshire. I can picture the day. I can mm. smell the fall air. Yes. And see the fresh fallen snow. Danny Paquette, the son of Rena. Yeah. Was shot from a range of 300 yards away, right through the heart, and was gone before he fell to the ground. Oh, my God. Was he out hunting? Oh, no. He was just working in the back of his uh, yard. So, mm-hmm. oh my God. We're going to get Somebody's going to gonna say it was a freaking hunting accident. <laughs> He's out in his yard, shot through the heart, point blank, on the first day of hunting season. Well, I don't know. Oh. I thought I saw antlers from a mile away. Oh, we're going to get to Jesus. that. We're going to get to that. But think about this family. Their mother is murdered in 1964. And the Suicide. police tell them it's a... Su- a very unlikely suicide. And now her son, Danny. The one that found her. The one that found her. 
is shot through the heart in what seems like a very impossible shot. 300 yards away, there were only 18 inches. There was only 18 inches of his body shown from where they determine, based on the trajectory of the bullet, that because uh, there's a witness Dude, who was working this with This is him. either the craziest accident other ever or a sniper, a sharpshooter. Oh, yeah, we're going to get to it. To go to the next episode uh, to learn how uh, people think the Paquette family deaths are related and who could have made such an impossible shot. So that's where I'm leaving you no. in this case. Yeah. No, I need to know know more about our prisoner and what his experience with guns were. Obviously, <laughs> the other ones were more point blank. They weren't from far away. Right, What's mean, his background? Is he a sniper? You're killing me, Smalls. Technically, he's still in prison right now. It's 1985. He wasn't released till 1991. Oh, shit. That's right. I wasn't mathing my years. Yes. So this is while he is, he is incarcerated. He sure is. Maybe they're But he connected. was never tried for Rena's murder. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I need a brain bath. I'm going to give you one and you're going to love it. Okay. And it was requested. I mean, this one wasn't sent to us, but a listener wrote us and requested more funny obituaries. <gasps> Those. So the last time you did these, it was with your former co-host. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I remember. I <laughs> sat. So do I. I sat. Di- I remember exactly where I was. Isn't that funny when that something is, is funny. so funny? Mm-hmm. I was getting ready for work in the morning and I just sat down on the bed in the guest bedroom because I get ready in that bathroom in the morning. And I was like putting nylons or something on when oh I remember. Like I have such a memory yeah, with it. You can remember. Thank I, you. Maybe I love you it. have a memory for it because somehow subconsciously you knew this was her last episode and that you were going to fill the position. Maybe. maybe. That I was your spirit guides. I don't just know. Just making you remember that moment. Or maybe I accidentally punched myself in the face when I was putting my nylons on. And so now I remember. Now it makes it. sense. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let me give you the obituary of William Freddie McCullough from Bloomingdale. But it, I don't I don't actually, I didn't make notes. Bloomies? Uh, from Bloomingdale? Of where this actually is. If so I sorry. die, can it be in the shoe section at Bloomingdale's? Bloomingdale's? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, she died trying to not pair a five-inch stiletto. She was 83 years old. She went to make a swift turn, and the next thing we do, she was To look at her ass there. in the mirror. She died happy with a <laughs> smile on her face. Still thinking her Many young great. men were looking at her, appreciating her at the time that she fell. This is my obit. I'm reading it, it to is, you. It is. I, I promise you, it'll be epic. <laughs> All right. All right. So it starts with the man, the myth, the legend. Men wanted to be him, and women wanted to be with him. Wow. William Freddie McCullough died on September 11th, 2013. Freddie loved deep fried Southern food smothered in cane syrup, fishing the Santee Cooper Lake, Little Debbie Cakes, Two and a Half Men, Beautiful Women, Reese's Cup, and Jim Beam. Hell yeah, brother. I know this guy. I know. Oh, when you see his picture, you're going to be like, I think I just saw him at the sit-go. I might have dated him in high school. You might have. He's not a bad looking guy. See? I will say this. This is why he's I popular like the, with the lookers. Ladies. So it says, quote, not necessarily in that order. So he loved all oh. those things, but not necessarily <laughs> in that order. Jim Beam came first. Mm-hmm. He hated vegetables and hypocrites. Not oh. necessarily in that order. I actually like vegetables. He was a master craftsman who single handedly built his beautiful house from the ground up. Freddie was also great at growing fruit trees, grilling chicken and ribs, popping wheelies on his Harley at 50 miles an hour, making everyone feel appreciated, and hitting Coke bottles at 30 yards with his 45. 
When it comes to floor covering, Freddie was one of the best in the business, and he loved doing it. Freddie loved to tell stories, and you could be sure that 50% of every story was true. You just never knew which 50%. (laughs) I know him. I know. I love this so bad. When you see his face, too, he's just so precious. All right. Marshall, Matt Dillon, Ben Cartwright, and Charlie Harper were his TV heroes, and he was the hero for his six children. Oh. Mark, Shane, Clint, Brandis, Ashley, and Thomas. One girl in there? Um... I think there's two. Okay. Yep. Freddie adored the ladies and they adored him. Mm-hmm. There isn't enough space here to list all of the women from Freddie's past. <laughs> Someone put this in an open. Uh-huh. There isn't enough space in the Bloomingdale phone book. <laughs> a few of the more colorful ones were, you're going to love this. Be ready. Shit. Okay. Uh, a few of the more colorful ones were Mama Margie, Crazy Pam, Big Titty Wanda. <gasps> in the, in the, oh, that. Spacey Stacy and Sweet Melissa. Oh, hold on. Oh, no. He explained that nickname had nothing to do with her attitude. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I love him. He attracted more women than a shoe sale at Macy's. Yeah, I should have said Bloomies. He got married when he was 18, but it didn't last. Freddie was no quitter, however, so he gave it he gave it a shot two more times, but it didn't work out with any of the wives, but he managed to stay friends with them and their parents. In between his many adventures, Freddie appeared in several films, including The Ordeal of Dr. Mudd, A Time for Miracles, The Conspirator, Double Wide Blues, and Pretty Fishes. When Freddie took off for, for that pool party in the sky, he left behind his son, Mark, Shane, wife Amy, Clint, and his wife Desiree, and Thomas, and his wife Candace, and his daughters, two daughters, yep, Brandis Chambers and her husband Michael, okay. and Ashley Cooler and her husband Justin, the, his brothers Jimmy and Eddie, and his girlfriend Lisa Hopkins, and seven delightful grandkids. Freddie was killed when he... <laughs> Freddie was killed when he rushed into a burning orphanage to save a group of adorable children. <laughs> or maybe not. We all know he liked to tell stories. Right? And that's how it ended. I love Isn't that. Isn't that amazing? I love it so Such much. Such a great obit. Rest in peace. His family loved him to do that. Absolutely. Anyway, like you gotta, yep. this was a fun guy. Yep. I want to hang, I want to hang out with him. Me too. And you, you know that he um, created beautiful souls that are much like him i'm sure too i mean to he approve was, of this obit he was moderately him. offensive to women in the obit or they were but I, sweet I guess melissa that sweet had nothing to do with her attitude Come oh on. i know I, crazy pam like <laughs> titty wanda god that's awful which when i read that i was like was that my grandma because that oh, is her your grandma's name is wanda yes and she had huge tits and she was only like 410 <laughs> so i'm like oh shit wanda do you have a secret she might <laughs> She might. <laughs> I love it. Oh, well, thank you guys for joining us for this episode. And uh, the next deep dive two-parter, be prepared because it's going to be intense. And follow us on social media. Send us your case suggestions. We're on social media or you can email us, crimecuriousyahoo.com or through our website, crimecuriouspodcast.com. And uh, hey, join Patreon to binge stuff and get your episodes sooner. You don't have to wait like the peasants of the world. If right. you join Patreon, you get them faster. And our Patreon Facebook group is super fun. Oh, it's super fun. You want to be a part of the yeah. Patreon Facebook group. It is for not sure. PG, so. No, no. But you we're have a to be an adult. We're a family. We are in there. a family. And that's uh, patreon.com forward slash crime curious. We're there. Or Absolutely. click the link in the show notes. So, all right. Until next time, everybody. 
Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, and hey, keep it curious. (laughs) 